Hey guys, welcome to my podcast Mind Maps, where each episode we will be traveling to a new destination on our mind maps, whether it be the mind of a friend that has started a nonprofit to a teacher with a YouTube channel. Hey guys, so today I have an amazing guest on the podcast. Her name is Magda, and she is the founder of General Intelligence. So Magda, could you just tell me a bit about yourself and about General Intelligences? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, So basically, I'm a rising junior at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Go blue. Um, I'm studying neuroscience on a pre-med track right now. Um, And I guess I can talk a little bit about general intelligences right now. So general intelligences is a nonprofit Um, And we really pride ourselves on being, you know, student run, student led and all of that. So all of our team is basically composed of college students and recent graduates. Uh, We actually also do have a couple of, you know, really driven seniors on our team as well, just to make sure that, you know, we're catering the content towards um, all of the people that would need it the most. Uh, So in terms of what we focus on, we focus mainly on educational inequality. So obviously that's very prevalent domestically. It's also a huge issue internationally as well, which is why we also have members of our team from different countries. Um, But our main focus is obviously the academic parts of educational inequality. Um, Those are a big issue. Not every person gets, you know, an equivalent education here in the U.S. And that's something that obviously shouldn't be the case. Um, But outside of even that academic, you know, playing field or whatever you want to call it, um, there's also a lot of kind of systemic issues in the way that we teach things that are basically life skills that a lot of um, people go into college or, you know, their adult life not learning or knowing in a K to 12 education. So that's stuff like, you know, like financial literacy, learning how to code, um, learning how to, you know, have your first resume or interview for a job. Um, And that's all very important. And a lot of people that, you know, maybe attended a more like affluent school um, might have had more access to those kinds of resources. So what we really try to do is we give free resources that are, you know, high level, high caliber, Since all of our team, we go to um, top 20 universities um, and colleges um, and we deliver it absolutely for free because we think that just because we're a free resource doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be high level and good material. Yeah, definitely. Um, I love that because especially where I actually grew up from, it's definitely a more affluent um, suburb and just like very high middle class or upper upper middle class um and so like if i were to grow up you know in let's say inner city detroit i would definitely have different resources than what i do in um my current community and so i think it's great what you're doing with general intelligence is where you're trying to bring all these different um things that kids will need to know that maybe they don't have in their community such as financial literacy um stem etc um and from you know amazing high quality people like yourself and from others from top tier universities so i love that and also go blue because i'm from michigan and now going on to just general intelligences and some more questions on that why did you initially start general intelligences Yeah, absolutely. So I'm also from Michigan as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I grew up in the suburbs. Um, It's Mm -hmm. actually a suburb about an hour or so out of Detroit. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so Rochester, Shelby. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, in terms of like my school experience, I ended up going to an IB school, which we had to test to get into and all of that other stuff. And um, mm -hmm. it was, you know, a very rigorous, like kind of like application process. Mm -hmm. The resources there at that school were very good. It was relatively underfunded, but overall good. Mm -hmm. um, but as, as I'm sure you're familiar with, um, mm -hmm. not everyone, for example, in Detroit public schools could have access to the same kinds of resources mm -hmm. um, or the same degree of resources as well. So for example, like my school, we had, you know, 90 kids in our graduating class. And that's just like kind of unheard of for such a big school district like Detroit public schools, right? Mm -hmm. and, in addition to obviously like the systemic issues with, you know, just like the teaching and the stuff like that. Um, even the buildings, you know, they have, they're kind of notorious for how much they're falling apart and how it's just not really a safe kind of learning environment either. Mm -hmm. um, so really what kind of started me on this whole path of trying to help um, mitigate educational inequality was um, being so close to another school district that didn't have great resources or access uh, like technology and stuff like that as well. Um, so I, I would say that's one of the main factors. Um, I think the other main driving point was obviously we really try to target the first gen and low income communities as well, just because even if you did attend like a relatively good school, um, first gen and low income students are still at a massive disadvantage, even if they did happen to attend maybe like a good, um, you know, college that they got into because they had good grades and, you know, did all of the right stuff in high school and stuff like that. So it's still like, there's still a lot of massive challenges that they need to overcome. And I think that a lot of times the main focus that a lot of organizations have is how do I get these high achieving first gen and low income students to attend these, you know, top 20 colleges and universities, but a lot of them don't think about what should I do to support them once they're actually there, because the, you know, the inequalities and like the differences, they don't just evaporate once you get to um, the college campus. Like you said, you have people from the top 20 universities. So I'd love to know how you went about finding these people to join general intelligences. Yeah, absolutely. So I think honestly, social media, I'm sure y'all agree as well, is mm -hmm. really just an amazing way to get connected to people that you might otherwise not really know or meet. Um, obviously, I recruited some of my friends that I knew, um, you know, that are going to U of M or that attended different schools as well, and then kind of branched out from there. Um, I really just put like stuff out there, like on my social media, on LinkedIn and stuff like that. And I gave them a little bit of background about what our org organization was going to do. Um, and thankfully, we had a very large pool of people that actually applied. So we have a couple of different ways we're structured in a sense. So we have a core team, which is basically like our executive board, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have um, our like general team members. And then we have people that just work on tutoring curriculum and mentoring. And then mm -hmm. we actually are very happy to say we brought on some interns actually recently as well. So 
in terms of like all of that, a lot of it, you know, once you have those initial people, a lot of it's just like word of mouth from there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, people attend like an event or something like that that we, we've hosted. They found it useful and then they send us an email after and they say, hey, how can I get involved? So it's a lot about, you know, providing those good, high quality resources and people just, you know, recognizing you for that and wanting to contribute. And then I would love to know, since you have, like you said, all these different aspects to um, the people in your team um, for general intelligences, like you have your core team, um, you have just general members, things like that. So I'd love to know how you went about organizing the different aspects of your organization. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of structure, I knew that I would always want to have, um, you know, maybe like around like 10 or so people um, on the core team, including me. And I thought that those people would be, you know, kind of like my go-to people. They'd take on like a bigger role in the organization, help a lot with, you know, kind of um, not just like the day-to-day, but like larger scale planning and stuff like that as well. Just because um, as much as I would love to, you know, participate in every single like event or every single meeting that we have with other organizations, um, I'm also a student obviously, and they are as well. Mm -hmm. So it's just been very helpful to be able to spread all of that out and to delegate tasks and things like that as well. And I really didn't actually know most of them before um, I started this organization. I met a lot of them just virtually. Um, mm. Like I said, they're from you know all over the place, right? So mm. I probably wouldn't have gotten to know them unless uh, you know I met them through this organization. Um, mm. And they've been really like a great asset, I think, um, in terms of helping this organization run, you know, really fluidly and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so to answer your question a little bit more about the kind of the structure, um, we have those 10 people, like I said, that take on that heavier role of kind of like delegating things, making sure everything's going and running okay. And then we have um, what I like to call content creators. So those are the people that are, you know, writing articles on our website. Um, we're branching out to also doing videos and stuff like that as well. Um, and that's basically how they contribute. So we have different content categories on our site. Um, so the content categories that we have are pre-professional. So that's anything like, you know, applying to like med school, law school, stuff like that, how to prepare. Um, then we have experience in campus climate. So that one was very, I think, important to us to include. A lot of seniors, I'm sure you understand or relate to this as well, mm -hmm. won't probably have the opportunity to tour a lot of like their campuses that they want to go to because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So that kind of section is really just based on, you know, what is college really like besides, or I guess, um, yeah, so what is college really like outside of what they advertise it to be? Because they advertise it to be obviously like perfect, yeah. but there's obviously like going to be like some things that you're going to have to deal with once you get on campus, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then we also wanted to address campus climate. So especially for, you know, first generation and low income students, some campuses are more friendly and receptive to um, a more diverse community of students. And some don't really have those support systems in place yet. And I think it's an important consideration um, to make that a lot of people might overlook when they're applying to colleges. So mm -hmm. that's kind of that section. Then we have financial literacy. Like I said, I think that's a really crucial skill to have. 
Um, I don't mean to say it in like a preachy sort of way or anything like that. Like uh, the advice that we give for that is not you shouldn't have like Starbucks like five times a week or something like that. Like yeah. it's really like good, like solid advice on like what your financial aid package is like, how to, you know, find scholarships that won't affect your financial aid package, how to, you know, budget things that like you would need to know, but maybe you're not sure how to go about. And then language and tech is also really huge. Um, I think that coding and programming and stuff like that, it has so many applications, even if you're not, you know, going into a STEM field. A lot of fields use, um, you know, for example, like R or like Python or stuff like that to like visualize like their data and things like that as well. So if anything, it's always going to be an asset to kind of know those things. Um, and it's actually very easy to kind of pick up some of them online. There's a lot of free resources out there for them as well. And then language and cultural kind of appreciation is also something we really want to emphasize as well. Just because, I mean, like a lot of language programs at schools get cut. A lot of schools don't even have actually, and this was kind of shocking to me, they don't even have, you know, a language requirement at all. Like oh. you don't even ever have to take a language class. Um, Michigan's actually pretty good at requiring you take a language class, but a lot of other states do not have that requirement. So mm -hmm. in fact, the US just in general really lags behind other countries worldwide on languages. Um, something like I think like a very small minority, maybe like a quarter of our like citizens and stuff like that speak a second language. Uh, whereas like in Europe, um, practically any European country actually, um, it's kind of the expectation that like 90-ish percent speak a second or even a third language. Um, and languages are very, very important, especially if you're going to a field that's very competitive, like business, for example. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to want you to set yourself apart by knowing those kinds of things. So I know that for general intelligence, you, you guys were doing like um, an imposter syndrome week. And so I guess talking about imposter syndrome now, um, could you just describe what imposter syndrome is to listeners? So I guess kind of just to briefly elaborate a little bit just on like the week in general. Mm -hmm. um, so it was this past week. Um, and honestly, we were just kind of shocked that there's not actually like a official imposter syndrome awareness sort of week mm -hmm. um, and we thought obviously like um being you know focused on students and you know education and stuff like that it would be right up our alley to do something about that so we got in contact with a lot of other organizations and stuff like that obviously including the podcast um mm -hmm. and we just basically wanted to you know spread awareness of like how prevalent it really is because obviously it gets talked about a lot of times it gets kind of talked about in regards to like memes or like you know kind of like tweets and stuff like that so it gets kind of like in a sense trivialized but it can be actually very serious and you know especially with you know having like those like self-image issues when you first start college or you're first starting high school or stuff like that mm -hmm. um, it could be you know very detrimental to a lot of students as well so to answer your question about what imposter syndrome is, um, so it can be called either imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, but kind of in a, in a layman kind of sense or way of describing it, um, it's basically just having that feeling that you are just an imposter. 
So basically what that means is, for example, if you have like a sort of achievement, um, maybe like you got, you know, first place in a competition or something like that, um, you aren't able to kind of internalize that and say it was, you know, a result of all of my hard work and I worked really hard. I, you know, did all the correct things, um, practiced, whatever. Um, and that's how I got to the place that I am. Um, someone that has imposter syndrome might, you know, think, oh, but I don't really necessarily think that I deserve, you know, first place. Did I really put in that much work? I think all of these other people are brilliant. They must have made some mistake or maybe it was like my lucky day. But in any case, it's never going to happen again because there's no way that I did that, you know, on my own. Um, and it's actually a very, very prevalent sort of issue and sort of feeling. It's not officially technically classified as um, um, a mental disorder yet. I know that there is sort of that movement towards that, but like kind of um, I've touched on, it's relatively been talked about more recently um, in terms of its rising prevalence and things like that in discussion and the scientific community. So I think that eventually it will probably become, um, you know, in like the DSM. Um, but for right now, it's not technically classified under them. Like you said, when you talked about how for imposter syndrome or somebody that had or has imposter syndrome, um, like if they had an achievement, they wouldn't or if they won like first place in something, they wouldn't think that it was because of their hard work and everything that they've done to get to that point. Um, and I guess sharing a story um, like this past year, I don't know if you've heard like about DECA. Um, yeah. So it's just something that I've done um, my whole high school career. And it was actually last year, um, I, like, so for when you, for listeners, um, when you go to DECA, like, you, like, there's districts, and then there's states, um, and then there's, like, nationals, and so um, you can, like, qualify from districts to states, and then for states, if you get, I think it's first out of your whole um, flight, you can make it to nationals, and last year, I actually got, I think, second in my flight, um, so I didn't necessarily make it until um, my like advisor for um our DECA chapter she told me that the person that got um first place she backed out to going to nationals and so um she said I got to qualify instead um and when I found out I was like obviously super happy but then um after like it after it sank in um I just felt like I didn't deserve it because I felt like it was more of just luck than what I like actually put in myself like the work that I put in myself to get to that spot like I just thought oh it must not be um because I'm actually qualified for this um this award I just thought it was because um I lucked out on this one time um like I don't think I have imposter syndrome but I do think sometimes I do have that feeling where it's like oh I don't know if this is like I got this because um of my achievements like or because like I actually worked for it I just feel like um it's just something that I got because of luck or things like that so I guess after talking about my personal story I would love to know if you have ever been personally affected by um imposter syndrome and if so if you could share your story yeah I mean absolutely so I think that that's you know a, a very like pertinent example and I think it also kind of really illustrates something that a lot of people may not really realize which is that imposter syndrome kind of exists on a sort of spectrum of severity it's not always that someone that has imposter syndrome is always like I am the worst person ever I'm my biggest self-critic nothing I do is ever correct sometimes it could just be you know those like 
individual moments or those individual like um, events that kind mm -hmm. of bring about those feelings of imposter syndrome. Um, personally, yes, I've definitely felt like um, imposter syndrome has been, you know, a part of my life. Um, for example, like in terms of like even things that I've done recently. So I've obviously started general intelligences. I started a nonprofit, you know, mm -hmm. um, I just got, you know, third place internationally for HOSA, um, mm -hmm. post-secondary division. Um, I just started, um, I'm on the student leadership team for the national pre-health conference. Um, and we organized it and put it together and everything, you know, founded, founded it and stuff like that as well. I'm also on another not-for-profit, which is focused on like MCAT-related stuff called Free the MCAT. Mm -hmm. um, and we provide free resources for people taking the MCAT just because it's very cost prohibitive to go into medicine. Um, and even though I've done all of those things, there's always still a couple of moments that I have where I'm like, yes, but you're not necessarily like the most amazing person out there. Or it was just very convenient that all of like the things kind of aligned or, you know, those initiatives to all be very successful. Um, and I think that really stems a lot from even early on, I think a lot of high achieving students, right? They go into those like gifted, talented programs in like, um, whether it's like elementary school, junior high, or even high school, for example, like getting into like an IB program or being in like the academically gifted and talented program or whatever it's called at like your school, right? Um, I think that just kind of, um, I don't want to say it helps people develop those kinds of feelings, but it definitely places an emphasis for those kids and definitely those adults as they grow up it places an emphasis on achievement being tied to self-worth. Mm -hmm. And it, I think it's a problematic kind of, I guess, correlation to make because you feel like you constantly have to be achieving something and you constantly have to be high achieving. Otherwise you feel like you've let someone down because you've tied your entire worth on being the smart kid or the, um, hardworking kid or the intelligent and creative kid or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for example, like even like during college apps, I think a lot of people can definitely say that they felt, you know, imposter syndrome about getting into like certain colleges or universities and stuff like that. Like mm -hmm. I got into Yale, for example, I ended up going to U of M mm -hmm. just because it was a better like financial decision and stuff like that at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like being close to family and stuff like that as well. But even then I was like, I don't necessarily know that I'm, you know, Yale or U of M material or stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Especially I like just got LinkedIn, I think a week ago or a few weeks ago. And I like, you know, just like seeing all the people on there, like all the different high school students too. And like um, looking through all their different um, profiles and seeing everything that they've done, like, you know, from starting nonprofits and like seeing the course load that they've taken I definitely can see how um that just kind of takes a toll on like me and like people that like have to sur be surrounded by an environment like that like where you were in an IB program um where it feels like you know your self-worth is tied to um your achievement or what you're doing and like I think it was like a week or two ago I interviewed these girls from Texas and they're around the same age as me as well, and they're both in an IB program, um, or IB high school, and in Texas, and 
um, one of the girls, she was, like, telling me about, you know, she's writing a book, she's, um, started a nonprofit. she started this podcast, um, but I feel like she still told me, like, I still want to do more, you know, it still felt like, to her, she wasn't doing enough compared to her peers, because it felt like, you know, everybody was doing this, so, like, I need to do, um, even more to, like, one-up the next person, um, right, so I totally understand where you're coming from, um, and now just going on to, because I know, um, for general intelligences, we or you guys put an emphasis on helping first gen and BIPOC students. So, um, how do you think imposter syndrome affects first gen and BIPOC students? So, um, actually, based on a couple of recent studies, um, I think both of them were actually published within like the past year. So you can tell that like this is just a very recent kind of, um, I guess, uh, phenomena that they've explored, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and one of them is called, if you ever wanted to look at it, it's called feeling like an imposter, um, which is the effect of perceived classroom competition on daily psychological experiences for first generation college students. And that one focused primarily on, like it says, the first generation low income students. And it was kind of just this like longitudinal study. Um, and it had something like, I think, nearly like a thousand students that took place uh, or participated in it, right? Mm -hmm. And what they found was that perceived classroom competition was associated with um, greater daily in-class imposter feelings among all students, but especially amongst first-generation students. And that led to things like um, less course engagement, lower attendance, more people dropping out, and even like lower course grades as well. So I think even, you know, like as a pre-med student at, you know, like a very good pre-med program, like nationally, that um, definitely makes a lot of sense to me because whenever you feel like you're in a very like super competitive environment or where everyone is, you know, very smart and driven and dedicated to, you know, pursuing their goals. Um, it can definitely be a big hamper on your, you know, self-image. Mm -hmm. um, for example, like if you took like a class, uh, like a science class or something like that, like part of the intro sequence and maybe didn't do as well in it as you wanted to, um, whereas other people seem like they, you know, breeze through, get an A and stuff like that and just talk about, oh, it's an intro class, like it should be easy. Um, I think for a lot of people, that's, you know, a very detrimental sort of thing to experience. Um, and then another one that, um, another study that we kind of emphasize during imposter syndrome week is um, called unpacking imposter syndrome and mental health as a person of color. Um, within high within institutions of higher education and so this one also again kind of ties back into you know first gen students and imposter syndrome and stuff like that but it also adds stuff about race and ethnicity playing a factor so um, basically it says that you know people of color basically in general are just impacted more by imposter syndrome because a lot of times they feel like maybe they have to prove themselves or you know mm -hmm. dispel a sort of stereotype or maybe adhere to a sort of stereotype for example like um you know asian american students have to you know feel like they live up to that like minority myth that mm -hmm. like you know great in all academic subjects and stuff like that mm -hmm. um but it's also especially damaging for students that attend schools where 
there are not a lot of, you know, minority students or representation and stuff like that, because then they also have to carry the weight of um, sort of being representatives, even though that they don't or shouldn't have to be representatives of, you know, their race or stuff like that. But they, mm -hmm. I, again, they feel like intrinsically based on this study that they carry that weight and that kind of responsibility of, you know, showing that they are, you know, intelligent and have, you know, respectable ideas and stuff like that. And that really just shouldn't be the case that people need to prove themselves or to dispel a stereotype or not adhere to a stereotype or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that was the results that they found. And I think both of them also noted that um, institutions of higher education, so, you know, colleges, universities, stuff like that, they can really all do a better job of acknowledging imposter syndrome, especially in, within those communities. A lot of times the most sort of support that students might get on a campus is maybe like a multicultural organization or like a first gen office and stuff like that. And while that's, you know, it's great to have that, um, I think definitely colleges can do more to acknowledge that it's an issue. Because like, um, um, I'm not sure if you're aware of like the statistic or anything like that, but it's something like only 9% of first gen students will actually go on to earn, you know, their bachelor's degree. And a lot of that has to do with dropping out once they actually are accepted into colleges and universities. So obviously there's a huge issue at play here. Obviously financially, that's definitely a huge factor. College is very expensive. But even outside of that, you know, having to deal with, you know, all of the expectations and stuff that you have from your family, in addition to just your schoolwork and anything else you have going on in your life. For a lot of students, that's like a, like a distinguishing or driving factor as to why they would drop out, right? Mm -hmm. So that's definitely something I think needs to be addressed. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Cause I remember growing up just as an Asian, you know, there's a stereotype where everybody thinks you have to be amazing at math or, you know, you just have to be really smart overall and like do all these things. And I do feel like sometimes, you know, I feel like I have to carry that cause People will ask me, you know, during math class, oh, Anna, can you help me with my work? Or, oh, do you know how to do this? And like, I mean, to be honest, I'm not the best person like at math. Like I am, uh, probably not even like the greatest person at all at math like because I want to go into business um and I love just you know communicating talking with people that's why I started this podcast too to just learn about other people's perspectives and mindsets and so I'm honestly not like the best person at math but they'll be asking me all these questions and like I feel like I have to again almost prove myself in a sense that like you know I am smart or I feel like um just also in the community that I've grown up in it's very I would say um I would like very competitive too, where um, all the kids are like, oh, what AP classes are you taking? Or, oh, um, you know, like making it to nationals for DECA or HOSA, all these different things. It almost dictates your, your worth. Like they feel like, oh, you're stupid if you don't make it to like nationals. And so like that's the environment that um, I've grown up in. And so also proving myself to them also feels like kind of a weight too on my shoulders where it feels like um, I have to, again, yeah, like prove myself that I am as smart as they think I am, or that I am, you know, really good at math, all these different things, and so I totally agree with that, and I, um, going on to, for, like, people of color, um, and just, I guess, um, more like the African Americans, because I saw this 
one tiktok and it was of this girl she got into all these ivies and um in the end of the tiktok she was saying I got in not because I was black, but because of my statistics. And then she showed like all her statistics and it was crazy. Like she had um, a 36 on her ACT. She did like all these different clubs and she was like the president of all of them. But it's just so sad that she has to prove herself and say that I got into all these amazing schools because it was just like of my own hard work, not because I'm like a person of color or like a black person. Like that's not the reason why I got into these schools, you know? So I definitely agree with what um, you said. Thank you guys so much for listening. It means the world and I hope you guys follow the podcast and stay tuned for the next episodes.